Well, my wife and I probably spent almost six years before God led us to be wed, way back over 25 years ago. And in that duration, starting late in high school and throughout college, we had lots of opportunities uh, to be with each other's family. In fact, when I was away my freshman year of college at a university and she was at home going to school and living at home, she would often go spend weekly times with my family, uh, getting to know my mom and dad further, while I wasn't even at living at home. I was in another part of the state. And so she got to know my family, and as much as I could, when I would be, be at home during the college years and so forth, I would get to know and spend time with her extended family as well. One thing about the Coleman family, you have to understand, they always loved to do was to play games, board games sit around and play all kinds of games, particularly card games. One card game, and maybe you've never heard of this particular card game, that they always love playing is called Liverpool Rummy. Now, if you've never heard of that, you can ask Charlotte after the service how you play. She can send you or email you instructions on how to play Liverpool Rummy. But basically, the goal of the, of the game, it has several rounds to it, as you everybody gets a certain number of cards, but every round, the goal is to go out before anyone else does, which would then empty your hands of all your cards. Your goal is to get rid of all the cards in your hands and leave your opponent with as many cards in their hands as possible at the end of that round. Consequently, your opponents or opponent, however many is playing the game, would rack up lots of points while you maintain an advantageous total of zero, if possible or very, very small numbers. So literally, when you play this particular game, to have less is to have more. The more you lose, the more you gain in this particular card game. Much like the card game, but in a very different sense, spiritually, the Apostle Paul, here in Philippians chapter 3, considers where he's been in his life, where God's taken him, where God has allowed him to travel, all that he's been through up to this point, and he comes to a very significant conclusion. He must renounce his reliance on his own moral assets and accomplishments and advantages and completely rely on Christ's advantages and accomplishments for him. Let me say that again. Paul comes to the place now as he's encouraging the Philippians, and he comes to this conclusion, and this is what he wants them to know. He wants them to know that he cannot rely on his own moral standing, his own moral accomplishments in any way, shape, or form, his obedience to the law, and he must completely 100% as much as possible rely on Christ's accomplishments for him. Paul begins this challenge, this encouragement to the Philippians with a real strong warning in the first three verses. Look at verse 2. He says to the Philippians, Now watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. Now in the NIV, if that's the uh, translation you're looking at particularly, you don't see what is actually there in other translations. Three different times in this verse, he gives a warning. And he says, watch out. The ESV uses the phrase, look out. The New American Standard says, beware. 
And so it would read, beware of those dogs. Beware of those evildoers. Beware of those mutilators of the flesh. When he says, watch out or beware for those dogs, it's a term that's very, in some ironic sense, was used not by, uh, as you think about the Jews and the Gentiles, it was a term used by the Jews, not necessarily by the Gentiles, but by the Jews referring to the Gentiles. They referred to them, the other race, not the people of God, as dogs. And so here, Paul now uses the term for the Jews themselves. Can you imagine that term being used for a Jew who all their lives had used this term for only a Gentile? Now Paul is using it for the Jews who falsely were teaching that salvation required works of the flesh. These dogs, as he says, would roam and scavenge and hunt and seek out those whom they could devour, who they could take into their control as followers of what they were teaching. Watch out, beware for those dogs. He says, watch out for evildoers, beware. The ironic thing is that those who are promoting these actions as the most righteous things to do, oh, perfect obedience to the law, the things we must do to be righteous, were actually not promoting righteousness at all, but actually that which was against what God wanted for his people. They were actually promoting a very anti-gospel message, which was rely on your own obedience, rely on your own compliance with the works of the law. That's what they were promoting, and that's completely against the message of what Christ came and preached and fulfilled. Watch out for mutilators of the flesh. Mutilators of the flesh were those Jews who had confessed Jesus, truly confessed Jesus, but they insisted that in order to complete or secure someone's salvation, they needed to be circumcised in obedience with the law of Moses. That's why they call them mutilators of the flesh, because circumcision was no longer needed. It was merely a cutting or the mutilating of the flesh. It was not a spiritual purpose for it, a need at all. It was no longer necessary or commanded by God. In fact, just the opposite. There was, as Jesus taught, the only necessary circumcision was of the heart. The circumcision of the heart. And yet, these were going back to the law of Moses and saying there must be the cutting of the flesh. So after Paul gives this triple warning three times, beware and watch out, look out. He then says in verse 3, for we put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in the flesh. And then, just in case someone doubted that Paul was speaking from experience, he now goes on and reminds the Philippians in this letter that he himself personally understood what it meant to trust in one's own righteousness. Above Probably anyone else he was writing the letter to, Paul himself says, if, if you think you've got confidence in what you've done for God, let me just speak for a moment. Let me just tell you for just one moment about what I've done in my religious experience of yielding and following the law of God. And so he gives 
an understanding of reliance on personal righteousness in his own life. And first, he speaks about the advantages that he had, that some of them that he was writing this letter to, many of them never had the advantages that he had. How he was, as he says in verses 4 and 5, I was circumcised, verse 5, on the eighth day. Circumcised on the eighth day, what's so significant about that? Well, this, of course, was in strict compliance with the law of Moses, that one should be circumcised on the eighth day. The ceremonial law found in Leviticus chapter 12. If you go and you read there in verse 3, you'll see this was commanded by God back in the Old Testament with Israel. And so he himself was complied with and that he was circumcised on the eighth day, not the seventh, not the ninth, but the very day that one should be as an Israel being circumcised. Also, he was of the people of Israel. In other words, there was no mixture of race. He was of Israel as purely as one could possibly be. He himself was perfectly of Israel. No mixture like many in his audience in Philippians that he was writing the letter to that had a mixed heritage of ethnicity. Paul was saying, I have a race purely from the line of Israel. He says, I was also of the tribe of Benjamin. Interesting. Of a tribe of Benjamin. Now, the special tribe, Benjamin, came, of course, from Israel's first king, King Saul, of whom Paul was first, as we know, his name was Saul before he became a believer on the, on the road to Damascus. He was named Saul, named after King Saul. And so he had every reason in his own righteousness to boast. But also the tribe of Benjamin was not just born of Israel, but was also born from Rachel, his beloved. Israel's beloved was Rachel. Specifically, He came from that line, that lineage. The tribe of Benjamin was key in the restoration of Israel after the exile back in 600 B.C. They were a key uh, tribe that brought encouragement and helped in the post-exilic return. Mordecai, if you read the book of Esther and the story of Esther in the Old Testament, Mordecai, which was her guardian, he was a Benjamite. He was a Benjamite, and he was key in giving Esther right counsel in the delivery of God's people, Israel, and rescuing them so that the Messiah would still come. So there's so many things about Paul's background and his advantages that he had when he was put up against the backdrop of being an Israelite, being one who was in the right pedigree of following the law of Moses, following what he needed to follow. And sometimes we put a lot of uh, trust in our Christian pedigrees. Sometimes we put sometimes too much trust in our pedigrees. He also says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. What does that mean? That means that there was no, as he would say, heathen blood in him. Purity was very crucial. Purity was very crucial. You know, several years ago, <clears throat> and all, all, all types of situations arise here at the community center on Sunday morning, and different people visit worship, and, 
at our, uh, our passing through and, and stopping by. And, but one particular Sunday a few years ago, uh, a young gentleman came, and uh, he was waiting around after the service, and he said, could we spend some time? I have some things I'd like to share with you and, and get your counsel for. I said, sure. He, uh, <clears throat> he then began to share with me, and excuse me, uh, we spent a couple of hours here, actually, after everything was closed down, just talking and listening and sharing. And he was really in a, a very stressful place in his spiritual journey. It was stressful because, and he was very concerned because of where he was in his life and his family and in his church. And he was struggling that Sunday morning because he felt like he could no, he could no longer uh, resolve the tension and the struggle that he was having with his own church family and what he saw happening there. And he said, but I, I absolutely cannot leave my church family. And I said, well, tell me, you know, exactly what was going on. And, and I said, now, you know, certainly you, you need to be speaking with your leadership and your elders and your pastor and your struggles. And he had been doing that all along and so forth. Uh, but it seemed like they had, after much effort, not come to a resolution. And he said, um, the thing that, that is so difficult for me is that I just cannot leave the church of my family. I said, what do you mean? He said, my family has been at this church for generation after generation. And he said, this is what, and I'll never forget this phrase, he said, he goes, this is my ancestral church. I went, wow, you don't hear that today very much. But it was very dear to him. And I could sense just how painful it was for him to possibly have to consider that that would no longer be what it's always been for generations and generations. So we prayed together, and I said, let me just encourage you with one thought. I listened to all he had to say, and then I, I challenged him to be open to the Lord about what maybe the Lord was calling him to do. And I didn't know, but I said, just make sure you do one thing as you're asking the Lord to show you, that you seek to love Jesus more than you love your ancestral church because he is the head of the church. And you got to love him first before you love all the other things that he's blessed you with, even in his own bride, the church. And he listened, and then we prayed. You know, so many of you, like me, were raised in the church. I was raised. Many of you were not, but I was and a lot of my background is completely in the church. Pretty much from the, I can't remember a time where I wasn't in the church pews on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night at prayer meeting and, and all those things. I just, it was just always a part of the family that I was raised in in my particular background. You know, even though that is true in my life and it might be true in your life, that doesn't automatically make you a true follower of Christ. You may be raised in the church, but that doesn't mean you are the Lord's. That's a relationship between you and Christ. That's something that you must personally engage with the Lord as he pursues you and you receive the faith he gives you to trust him and you walk with him. It's a relationship. It's not about what pedigree, what background you have, 
what you've accomplished in your spiritual or religious or Christian resume at all. Even like Paul, who had so much that he could boast about, he realized it meant absolutely nothing. He goes on after he talks about these advantages, and he mentions these accomplishments. You see, it's one thing to be born into what Paul was born into, but what did he actually do with all those advantages? Sometimes we've been given lots of advantages, and we just waste them away. Paul didn't do that. He took them, and he used them for great accomplishments in his religious pursuits. He was very zealous, extremely zealous. In verses 5 and 6, he says, after he gives his advantages, he says, as for zeal, verse 6, he says, or in, excuse me, in verse 5, in regards to the law, that means in obe- obeying the law, he says, a Pharisee. And you say, well, I wouldn't boast about that, being a Pharisee. From our perspective now, where we sit reading the Scriptures and understanding everything we see in hindsight, why would he boast about something like that? But you have to go back all the way to where Paul's mindset was. And even before Paul, you know, the, the, the word Pharisee was not a bad thing many years before Christ. If you go back, it was not always a bad word. Pharisees developed during the intertestamental times. You see, between the Old and the New Testament, there was about a four, 450-year period there between the end of what we have understanding of the Old Testament period of the, of the prophets in the New Testament being brought in with Christ's coming and incarnation. In that period, this group developed called the Pharisees. And you see, they became separatists. They kind of pulled away from the mainstream of the culture. And they pursued worship. They pursued obedience to the law of God, as God had called them to. And they were quite uh, convicted of their pursuits, even though the culture was very syncretistic, meaning their worship Many of Israel had become very uh, mixed in their understanding of what truly worshiping the one true God meant for them. And so the Pharisees, back in the intertestamental times, they were truly seeking after God, and they were wanting to worship Him. Only when they took the oral traditions of Moses' law and began having a reliance on obedience to the law, which they felt was giving them more of a secure place in the kingdom of heaven, only when they began to have the reliance in that sense is when they went off the mark and they missed the mark that they were seeking to follow. And so Paul says, I was that type of a follower of the law. I was a Pharisee. I kept it so well, so well. As for zeal, he says, I persecuted the church. Paul had one step up on, he had one step up on the Judaizers. You see, the Judaizers, they would proselytize and try to bring others on board with their teaching and following them and what they were leading uh, and their understanding of what it meant to follow God and his law. 
They merely proselytized, the Judaizers did, but Paul persecuted Christians. He took it one step further. He didn't just proselytize. He went after Christians and sought even to take their life. Paul was very devout in his convictions in persecuting even the church of Jesus Christ. He also says, as for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. Paul complied with the Mosaic law probably better than almost anyone. He truly knew the law, and he complied with it, not only in his mind, but in his actions, in his, in his life. Now, he obviously was not perfect. He could not be, but as far as probably to a public eye, he probably was close to perfect. In his private life, I'm sure he wasn't in many ways, if anyone ever saw that, which probably very few did, but in his public arena, he was faultless. So when he says, I was faultless, probably not many people doubted him. They agreed, yes, what I've seen, you are faultless with the law of Moses. He complied very carefully. You know, a Pharisee was the very summit of what Jewish religious experience was about, keeping the law, keeping it legalistically and perfectly. Much like many would look at the, maybe the priest or the bishop or even the pope today in the Catholic Church as keeping the commands of God almost perfectly. Many people take those in those positions and place them in a similar way that maybe many would have placed Paul in a position of keeping God's commands perfectly. You know, in some ways, I cannot identify with what kind of life and what Paul was saying about his accomplishments because that was a whole different time, a whole different era, a culture, and so forth, and I cannot even begin to, to connect with what Paul's saying but in some ways, my own personal story lines up with Paul very much just like what Paul experienced. <clears throat> I was raised in the church, and uh, like I said, every time the doors were open, we were there as a, as, a, as a family, my brother, my mom, and my dad. By the time, though, <clears throat> I reached high school, I really felt more uh, of a, a desire to serve the Lord and it kept growing, and I finally connected with other Christian brothers and sisters in our uh, local public high school that I was uh, attending, <clears throat> and began really to take off in my faith even more as an encouragement in that setting. I got to the point where in my junior year and into my senior year in high school, this was a typical weekly schedule for me. Sunday morning, I would get up and go to Sunday school first. And then I would go to worship service, <clears throat> go home and eat mom's pot roast and potatoes for lunch, which always was there on Sunday after church. You'd walk in the door and just have that woof of smell of mom baking that, uh, cooking that pot roast that had been cooking all morning. And then the afternoon, I would go to our church youth group at 5.30. After that was over, I would then go to our 7 o'clock evening service. After that was over, at 8 o'clock, I would then go to kind of a high school discipleship Bible study group of a bunch of friends of mine that went to, went to this one kind of Bible study group thing. So that, on Sunday, was five times I went to some type of Christian gathering just on Sunday. That's crazy. But that's what I did week after week after week after week. Monday morning, I would get up early about 5.30 or 6, <clears throat> and some Christian brothers and myself who were asked by a local junior high school that we had attended and graduated from to go to, to the local high school, were asked if we would go in and try to help out with 
things that were really going wrong in that school. So we started kind of a ministry as high school seniors in the local junior high school. And so on Monday mornings, we would have about 20 junior high students come to my house, and we would lead them in a Bible study in our living room. And then we would put them in our cars, and we'd drive them to junior high school. We'd drop them off, and then we'd go to high school for our day on Monday. That was what I did on Monday morning. Then on Tuesday night, we had, I had, excuse me, Tuesday morning, I had my own discipleship group with a bunch of high school guys I went to before school started, and then I went on to school for my day. Then on Wednesday evening, I would go to Wednesday night prayer meeting in the church, and then at 8 o'clock after prayer meeting, I would go to another Bible study. Thursday night, I was the large group kind of MC for this big citywide ministry of Campus Crusade in the high school called Student Venture. And I was involved as a leader in that ministry, and we did the exact replicating that ministry on Friday night with all the junior hires that we were trying to, trying to reach out to in that community. We said, on Friday nights, as a high school senior, I did a junior high ministry program meeting and led it with my, with my friends. That was my Friday night in high school. And I had the audacity on Saturday night to go to a pizza hut where a friend of mine, always every Saturday, had a Bible study, just because I had nothing to do on Saturday night. 13, 14 times a week, that was my week. I had a reason to boast in my Christian life about what I was doing for the Lord, how I was serving him, how I was living for him. But you know, here was my problem in all of that. Jesus really wasn't there. I didn't spend hardly any time with him. I didn't seek him or listen to him. I was just busy doing things for him. I wasn't seeking him. I was just seeking to do things, to gain the respect of others, to gain others' uh, value in what I was doing. And certainly, I was not doing it with a heart that desired to follow Christ. So in one sense, I was relying on my own righteousness, just like Paul. And so I finally got tired of doing that by the time I graduated. And I just left it all aside and just began to focus on my relationship with God, my relationship with Christ. And that was the most important decision I could have made as I left high school and entered into my young adult years. Paul had many accomplishments. You know, you think about Paul and all that he was able to receive, his education, his experiences. How could someone like the Apostle Paul, who was so experienced, so well-traveled, even street smart, and very well theologically trained, how could he miss the mark on this one? all those years in his life. How could he miss the mark? Here's how. He was using the wrong measuring stick. He was comparing himself to others. That's what I did when I was looking around at my peers in high school and, and even in college. I was comparing myself to others. And so I always sought to stay ahead of them in the religious game. I was fairly good at it. But that's not what being in a relationship with Christ is about being ahead of others. You see, my measuring stick was against other people, other Christians, other believers. It wasn't a measuring stick that was a, placed against God himself and what he had done for me. And so Paul missed the mark because he had the wrong measuring stick. Paul described just how he had used to rely on his own righteousness, but now he moves to talking about what it means to rely not on his own righteousness, 
but on Christ's righteousness. Verses 7 to 11. He says, Now, whatever were gained to me, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, verse 8, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage. If you looked up the original language of the Greek for this word garbage, you would see the Greek word skibola, which is the word there translated from what the original word was. Garbage. Literally means refuse. Waste. It's about as close as you can get to a vernacular cursing, if there is a curse word in the scriptures, is this word right here. All that I did that everyone looked at as righteous, Paul says it was just like the stuff in the bottom of the toilet. That's what it was. That's how bad. And it smelled that bad, and it was that bad. That's how Paul understood it. Now, in light of relying on Christ's righteousness. In verse 9, he says, And to be found in him, that is Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Everything that had once been Paul's religious pursuit was now cast in the shadow of Christ's sacrifice and his righteousness. Paul took a personal inventory of all that was in his assets column, and it all added up to a big fat zero. All that he thought added up to a lot of merit meant absolutely nothing. It was zero. D.L. Moody said this, the beginning of greatness is to be little. The increase of greatness to be less, and the perfection of greatness is to be nothing. Think about that. Greatness in the kingdom of God is to be nothing, to humble ourselves before him, and he is everything. We are nothing. How do you know where your reliance lies this morning? How do you know if you're relying on your own advantages that God's blessed you with? How do you know if you're relying on your own accomplishments, spiritual or otherwise, in your life? How do you know if you're doing that? Well, I would take a personal inventory very simply. I would reflect and consider asking myself this question. When advantages and when my accomplishments or even the potential accomplishments that I seek to find and do in my life, when those are threatened, when those are even taken away, how do I respond? How do you respond when the advantages or the, the accomplishments that you have completed or are in the process of seeking to accomplish when they're threatened or they're taken away, how do you respond? How do you respond in your heart? Are you bitter? Are you angry? Are you resentful? Are you frustrated when that happens? Do you give it to the Lord or do you continue to remain angry and frustrated and resentful and bitter when those things are taken away or possibly threatened? 
The gospel is freeing because we have nothing to lose. That's why the gospel is so freeing. We have nothing to lose because we did nothing to gain. You see how it goes? The gospel is free. It's freeing because you did nothing to gain it. You do nothing to rely on yourself. And you rely completely on Christ for all that you are and all that you will ever receive. And that's freeing for you. It must be freeing because it's not on your shoulders anymore. It never was and it never will be. You're free in Christ. And as Galatians says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. J.I. Packer speaks about the freedom. He says the Christian under grace is freed from the hopeless necessity of trying to commend himself to God by perfect law keeping. Now he lives by being forgiven and so is free at every point in his life to fail. You're free to fail because you're going to anyway. Even if you don't embrace what Paul is saying here this morning, you're going to fail. The only really decision you're making right now is whether or not when you fail, how does that affect you? Are you still free and at peace in what Christ has done for you and who you are in him when failure comes? Or are you wrapped up in all your stuff and all of what you need to accomplish and all of who you are and what you're going to do in this world so that at the end of your life, your tombstone reads X, Y, Z. Is that what you're wrapped up in? Because you won't be free. You'll never be free if that's where your heart is. But Paul is freed. He's given us the freedom in Christ. We have nothing to lose, literally. One thing I always appreciate about my seminary professor, Dr. Steve Brown, when I was at Reformed Seminary, he's a wonderful uh, friend, a godly man, but one thing Steve Brown did uh, in a class that all of us as uh, students took with him, which was kind of practical theology, it was a class about living under grace, living in grace, living by grace, I'm not sure the title, but it was, it was all about grace in the Christian life. First day of class, usually you get this big syllabus in seminary from your professor, and all the books you're going to read and everything you're going to do. And so his was usually one page or so, very simple. And usually we read his book that he had just written. And then he said, now listen here. You have an A. You have an A. So just breathe. Relax. Right now you've got an A for this class. Everyone in here has an A. He goes, and you're probably going to get an A. And you really don't have a lot to, to do in this class except a few, you know, reading assignments and a few things like this. So it, don't worry about your grade because you're already there. And we, we're like, well, that's kind of a different approach to starting out your semester in a seminary class. Usually it was like, here's everything you're going to have to get done. And you better start now because you're already behind. That's how it felt every time I started a semester. Such a different feeling when you start out from, it's all done, I'm good. This is great. It was so freeing to go through the whole semester in that class 
to still, and actually to still do the assignments, but I didn't worry about that grade. Just didn't, it wasn't a concern. You see, my understanding and my position was a whole different way when I looked at it from that perspective. I was already accepted by my professor. I already had, the grade was already done for me. It wasn't something I had to earn or do. It was something that he was trying to get us to understand what the very subject matter was, what grace was all about. I always appreciated that understanding in my own experience with Dr. Steve Brown. So, as we uh, come to the Lord's table, how do we receive this freedom, this, this grace that is so freeing, this reliance on Christ and not ourselves? Well, Paul says in verse 9 right there, on the basis of faith, that's how you receive it. You believe, you trust, you depend, you give your heart and your mind and your will to Jesus. Jesus.